We are in a series in discussing the assumptions and methods in the interpretation of the Bible. We have covered a, f- a few points, and last time we were on point number 15. Uh, today we'll continue from 15 on to the last point, point number 22. Now, last time, uh, because of one or two reasons, uh, it was completely missed to cover the fifth of point number 15. Last time in, in point number 15, mistakenly, we ended by only making four points when there are five points. The point of number 15 was um, <clears throat> the solas of the Reformation, Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, And then the fifth point was to be, and so we'll cover it now, the glory of God alone. The glory of God alone. Why did God create the world? Why did he create the world? Did he create the world to manifest and show his love as the primary virtue and characteristic of God, attribute of God, so that he loves everyone equally? Is that the main reason why he created the world, to love the world? Or was his primary reason to judge the world, to judge the world? We might say that we have to include that, or do you not, uh, or otherwise, how will God judge the world? It says in Romans 3, verse 8. So the judgment of God is certainly central to the Bible creating the world to judge the world. But that, even though that is a goal and an event, the day of judgment, supporting both the love of God and the justice of God is ultimately for the glory of God. The glory of God is the main reason that he created the world. It is the central reason he created the world. And that glory is manifested when he loves his elect and it is manifested when he judges or retributes, meets out punishment to the reprobate. So both in justice and in love, he is glorified. Some proofs uh, from scripture on this. We first go to Romans 11. Romans eleven thirty three. To 36. Romans 11:33. The apostle in chapters 9 to 11 has des- described the sovereignty of God, his predestinarian work in salvation, and the means by which it takes place, and that is the preaching of the gospel in Romans chapter 10. After explaining his marvelous work in redemption, he concludes this way. Not only redemption, but judgment, because some believe, others disbelieve. Some are elect, others are reprobate. 11.33 says, to conclude this section, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The glory of God in both redemption and retribution. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything we do should be to the glory of God, not our glory, but His glory. The world was not created for man glory, but for God's glory. Revelation 19. Revelation 19. After judgment has occurred, the people of God, the elect, the believers who are redeemed, and then the wicked are judged, they are punished. It says this, Revelation 19, verses 1 to one to 6. <clears throat> 19, 1 to 6. After these things, I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. This is the work of God, both in redemption and in retribution, deserving praise, honor, glory, and thankfulness. These are the five solas. We are here for the glory of God and His alone. Well, now, point number 16. Point 16 also has five subpoints. Number 16. The doctrines of grace explain salvation from beginning to end and are profusely evident throughout the Bible. The doctrines of grace. They are the doctrines that correctly explain, correctly convey, communicate salvation from the beginning to the end. And it's not as though it's, these doctrines are isolated a little bit in Romans and a little bit in Ephesians, but nowhere else in the Bible. The rest of the Bible, they teach the opposite. No, the whole Bible Profusely, many, many, many verses teach the doctrines of grace. And 
One reason why they're called the doctrines of grace is based on the gospel of grace. Acts 20.24 calls the gospel we believe the gospel of grace. So then, the doctrines related to this gospel are gracious doctrines. Gracious toward the elect. That's the way we are saved. So what are these five points? The five points have an acronym TULIP. The first, total depravity and inability. The second, unconditional election. The third, limited atonement. The fourth, irresistible grace. And the fifth, perseverance of the saints. Let's see each in turn. Total depravity and inability. Total depravity. That is, we... The will of man is so depraved and unable to release himself or do anything to deliver himself for his salvation. Total depravity and inability. Romans 8, 5 to 8. Romans 8, 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We find that the flesh produces death. The flesh is hostile toward God. The flesh does not subject itself to the law of God. These are describing its depravity. But then its inability is described in two clauses in verses 7 and 8. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. We could read 1 to 5 to see the contrast. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working, in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In 1 to 3, he calls us dead. In verse 1, he calls us dead and worthy of the wrath of God. In verses 1 to 3, because we were belonging to the world, the flesh, and the devil. We were slaves of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Verses 1 to 3. But how were we delivered? Verses 4 and 5. 
God's rich mercy, God's great love with which he loved us. When did he love us? In what condition were we when he loved us? Verse 5. We were dead. That's speaking of our inability. No dead man can see or hear or does not have a heartbeat. Correct? While we were dead, he made us alive. He made us alive. That that means that he created a miracle in us to make our unbeating dead heart alive and tender, pumping spiritual blood. And the same with our eyes and our ears. He had to do so because we were unable being dead. The second point of the doctrines of grace or tulip The you of tulip is unconditional election. Unconditional election. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Notice here how many times God's active will is involved and how much he either does not mention or suppresses or puts in perspective our will based on God's will. What is the superior will involved and what is the inferior will involved in our salvation? This is the reason it's unconditional. It's not conditioned on God foreseeing our will doing something good. That would be free will theology, which is idolatry. And all idolaters go to the lake of fire, Revelation 21.8. So Ephesians 1.3. Blessed, notice God's will in all this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ." things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, You are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge 
of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. It's quite clear throughout God's initiative, God's action, God's will superior to our will. And our will is practically not mentioned or significant until verse 13, when he says that we heard the gospel and we believed. But how did we believe? Because God chose us to believe. 2 Timothy 1, 9. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. <clears throat> Who has saved us, that is God. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. He saved us not according to our works. If we exercised our will, then that would be a work because it would be something that we did. But he says it's not according to our works, his, but it's only according to his own purpose and grace granted us. He has to grant it. The third point of TULIP in the doctrines of grace is limited atonement. The L of TULIP is limited atonement. That is, it answers the question, for whom did Jesus die? For whom? When Jesus died, did he die a death to make salvation possible? To open the door and it's just for us to walk through the door? Did he do it like that? He, did he make it possible? Or did he make salvation definite? Did he make it certain? Did he make it so that the ones for whom he died will effectively, will definitely, eventually believe and be saved? Why did he die? That's what limited atonement or the atonement, that is the question it asks. For whom did he die? And it is limited. Limited for whom? Limited for the elect. It's for the elect who will definitely be saved. John 10, 14 and 15. John 10, 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. He says, our Lord says, I lay down my life for the sheep. He doesn't say for the sheep and the goats. Whenever the scripture is talking about sheep, it's often in contrast to the unbelievers, the goats. Well, who would the goats be in this context? The Pharisees. The Pharisees were introduced in chapter 9, and he's continuing to dialogue and debate them, <clears throat> defend himself before the Pharisees in this chapter, chapter 10. <coughs> 
We find this occurring later in chapter 10. And the free will theology says, well, it says for the sheep, but it doesn't say only for the sheep. If he died for the sheep, then he died for the sheep and the rest of the world, that is the sheep and the goats. It doesn't say only for the sheep. Well, in context, that's what he means because he's telling his enemies that he didn't die for them. He died for his own. And his enemies uh, re-engage him in 10.24. John 10.24. The Jews therefore gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father, we are one. Christ says in verse 26, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. That's a statement describing predestination, and limited atonement. Limited atonement, if we keep in mind verses 14 and 15. When he, says that it, when he says it this way, think about if he had said it the way of free will. The way of free will would be, but you are not of my sheep because you do not believe. So if you want to become a sheep, you need to believe but he's not meaning it that way. He didn't say it that way. He says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. If you were his sheep for whom he's dying, then you would believe, like we said earlier in unconditional election. If we are unconditionally chosen of God, we will believe at some point in our life and have true belief, not false And then in 27 to 30, he tells us that he came for his sheep, then they're never going to perish. Why? Because he died for them. So their salvation is definite. It's secure. It's stable. It will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for us, for the sheep. He and the Father have all the power to ensure that it happens. In John, we have another place, and that would be John 17, verse 9. John 17, 9. In free will theology, they teach that John 17 is Jesus merely and exclusively praying for his disciples. And he doesn't mention the rest of the world. And he is praying for his disciples to benefit. The rest of the world, they are not his concern. Well, that's not exactly true. In 17.9, he says that he doesn't care about the rest of the world. He's not ignoring the rest of the world. He's saying he doesn't care about the rest of the world because he's not going to pray for the rest of the world. Verse 9, I ask 
on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. He doesn't pray for the salvation of the whole world, the rest of the world, but only for the salvation of those given by the Father to the Son. A fourth point in the doctrines of grace is known as irresistible grace. That grace is irresistible. When we say this, what we mean, and the Bible means, is the grace of God for the elect is irresistible. They might resist God for 20, 30, 40 years. They might resist Him for a while. But what we're talking about is when God's irresistible grace is at work at the time He wants to save us, let's say it's at age 50, if that's the time He wants to save us, He's going to save us at that time and it's irresistible. He will make sure it happens. That's what is meant by irresistible grace. Irresistible grace is not denying or ignoring the fact that people do constantly resist the grace of God in other ways. They do. Constantly they are resisting the grace of God, but not in this sense. It is irresistible when he is going to save. John 6 John 6:37 John 6:37 All that the Father gives me shall come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out All that the Father gives me shall come to me will come to me it's going to happen There's a restrictive use of all in 37 a qualified, modified all. It doesn't mean every person in the world. It means all that the Father gives him. Shall come to me. It's going to happen. That must mean it's irresistible. And I will certainly not cast out. They will continue in the faith from beginning to end. Elsewhere we find Romans 9 19. In Romans 9, 19, he compares and contrasts individuals and even nations who are believers and others who are unbelievers, those who are elect and the others who are reprobate. This is what he does in the chapter. And this is all because of the supreme sovereign will of God. That's his discussion, his argument in Romans 9. Well, after explaining that God in verses 14 to 18, Romans 9, 14 to 18, after explaining that God showed mercy to Moses, but he did not show mercy to Pharaoh. In fact, verse 18, so that he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. He does both. 
toward the elect, mercy, the reprobate, hardening. What does that imply? That those who receive mercy receive it irresistibly because God's more powerful than any man or even a million men or one billion or seven billion men. He's more powerful than men. And even the reprobate, they cannot resist the will of God when he hardens them. Is that not what he's saying in verse 18? Indeed he is, because the objector, the complainer, the whiner in the readership says the following. Look at it, 919. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? They are acknowledging the premise that no one can resist the will of God. Doesn't it mean that they believe, the complainer believes in the irresistible will of God according to the way Paul is teaching it? They don't like it, they despise it. So they're, now they're going to accuse God of doing evil by finding fault in people. Yet the assumption is still, who resists his will? No one. It's irresistible. And irresistible in terms of grace for the elect who receive mercy. Now, the fifth point of TULIP is perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. It says in Philippians 1.6, Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God who began a good work in us will perfect it, will complete it, will finish it. How long? Until the day of Christ Jesus, until the day of judgment, when Christ sits on the throne. Also John 6, John 6 on perseverance. John 6, we read verse 37. How does verse 37 express perseverance? Because it says in 37, I will certainly not cast out. Certainly not cast out. 6.44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. The one who comes to Christ that is believes in Christ he will raise him up on the last day. 6.39 639, and this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Perseverance. From beginning to end, God saves. <coughs> then throughout our life, he sanctifies us. And finally, at the end, we are glorified 
to be with the Lord forever. That's perseverance of the saints. So these doctrines in the Bible cannot be undermined in any part of the Bible. If they are undermined, then we are misinterpreting that part of the Bible. So we have to back up, we have to back off, we have to have some humility and sobriety and say, well, what then does this verse mean? What then does this verse mean? And see if we can study it carefully in context so that it does not undermine the doctrines of grace. That was number 16, point 16, now 17. 17 and following will present a few very practical matters in terms of how we handle the Bible day to day. 17, read the scripture several times and study the context carefully instead of jumping to conclusions. Read it carefully instead of jumping to conclusions. We will see in one of the subsequent points how people have jumped to conclusions by rashly reading the Bible and coming away with a distorted interpretation. The way to avoid it is to read it several times, study the context, study the paragraph, study the chapter, study the book, study the rest of the Bible, and see how a particular verse fits. We have examples of <clears throat> this being handled correctly. The Bereans in Acts 17. The Bereans in Acts 17. <clears throat> now, the Bereans were ordinary people in terms of not being pastors and preachers. It says this in Acts 17, 10 and 11. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They were curious. They were eager when they heard the apostles' message. But though they received it with great eagerness, which should be our own disposition to the Bible being explained and preached, how did they ensure that what they heard was correct? They examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And they are commended, are they not? Verse 11, more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Pastors are also supposed to be like this. 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. Diligent handling 
accurately the word of truth. Examples of misinterpretation. Matthew 7, verse 1. Matthew 7, verse 1. And usually, the irony is that those who misinterpret don't even know where to find the verses they misinterpret in the Bible. They don't know where to find them. They say, well, somewhere in the Bible it says, do not judge. Do not judge. Well, it does say that in Matthew 7, 1. The words are there. But let's see what it means. 1 to 6. Do not judge lest you be judged yourselves. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? And behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Does the statement, do not judge, mean there is no judgment for us in this world, in this life? Not at all. That would be contrary to the whole Bible, which is full of judgment. Even the New Testament is full of judgment. Clusters of it may be found in Matthew, where Jesus is judging people all the time. In the book of Hebrews, where there is condemnation and judgment throughout. The book of Revelation, there's judgment falling from heaven constantly until the end and the day of judgment. But in this context, speaking of reading the context carefully, doesn't Jesus say, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye? So once I remove the log that's in my eye, then I can help my brother take out the speck. And taking out the speck is a judgment, just like we have to judge ourselves first, make sure we are seeing clearly, and then we can help our brother see clearly. Also, he says, you hypocrite. He's talking about hypocritical judgment. Further, verse 6, isn't verse 6 right after 1 to 5? Verse 6 says, do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine. That means we have to judge what is holy, what are the pearls, and then figure out who are the dogs and who are the swine. Does that not take judgment? Of course it does. In context, people distort the verse that they don't even know where to find in the Bible. Do not judge. Don't judge. Another example is 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, 24. This was found on a notepad in a Christian bookstore. A notepad, the top of the notepad was a to-do list. That's the kind of notepad it was, to-do list, today's to-do list. And then at the bottom of the notepad, it said this, do this in remembrance of me. 
Do this in remembrance of me. On a Christian notepad in a Christian bookstore. Does this verse have anything to do with your daily tasks and reminders? No. No. But they put it there. Do this in remembrance of me. Revelation 7.3. Talk about reading rashly and distorting the Bible, taking it out of context. Here, a third example. Revelation 7.3. Saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. This was found on an apron at a nursery, a plant store, nursery. This was found on an apron because gardeners need to wear aprons sometimes, right? With the pockets, the holes to keep keep their tools and little objects while they're going around here and there in their backyard garden. Well, this was found and the rest of the verse was not written. Only this part was, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. That's it. Revelation 7, 3. But what does it mean in context? It says, until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Well, in the very verse, doesn't until mean don't do any harm to the earth until the bondservants of God are sealed and after they are sealed, then you can destroy the earth? Isn't that what it means? Isn't that what's going on in the rest of the book of Revelation? Of course that's what's going on in the rest of the book of Revelation. Does the verse have anything to do with Mother Nature, Mother Earth, the goddess of Mother Earth, protecting Mother Earth? No, it has nothing to do with that. Environmentalism, it has nothing to do with it. (coughs) But the fanatics saw the words and made a Christian apron for gardeners, Christian gardeners. This is the reason why we cannot be careless with our reading and use of Scripture. If we are offended when people take us out of context, and we should be when people take us out of context, especially when it has to do with weighty and dangerous matters. If people take us out of context and we are upset, then is not God upset? Is he not wrathful when people are using his words out of context because they don't care to be careful and study the passage properly? So instead of taking the Bible out of context to ensure that we are taking it in context, read it several times, study the context, even summarize the chapter. Summarize the chapter for yourself and for others. Just in one sentence, maybe. What does this chapter contain? Summarize it for yourself in one sentence, and that will help you to understand its contents. Number 18, point 18. Practice reading the whole Bible many times throughout your life. Read the whole Bible many times throughout your life. Yes, Colossians 3, Colossians 3, 16. 
Does the Bible expect us to know the Bible? Colossians 3, 16. Yes, even the New Testament. Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. (coughs) How are we able to teach and admonish one another if the word of Christ in us is lacking, if it's poorly within us? But it says here, it's supposed to be richly within us. Richly, not poorly. Hebrews 5.11. Hebrews 5.11. 11 to 14. Hebrews 5.11. Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The apostle is scolding his readers because they have become dull of hearing. At this point, they ought to be teachers. But what does it assume for a teacher to have? Knowledge, full knowledge, comprehensive knowledge. Otherwise, why is he teaching? Do we want ignorant math teachers? Do we want ignorant English teachers? Do we want ignorant history teachers? Do we want ignorant science teachers? No, we want them to be knowledgeable. And that's the same with the Bible. If we are going to teach anybody the Bible, we better know what's in it. Because he says, otherwise, we are dull of hearing. And we have come to need milk and not solid food. But we should be accustomed to the word of righteousness as solid food with practice, have our senses trained to discern good and evil. Practice and training. It doesn't happen automatically. And it should not happen superficially. This is important because most pastors are ignorant of the contents of the Bible. And then they spread their ignorance to their hearers. So that there is a famine for the word of the Lord in the land. They are ignorant. When they go to seminary, most pastors, before they have reached seminary... Most of them have not read the whole Bible. Maybe some have read the whole New Testament. And then when they finish seminary in three or four years, even then in many seminaries, there is no requirement from the professors or the seminary to make sure that their students upon graduation have read the whole Bible at least one time. This is a travesty. If we don't know what's in the Bible, we should never open our mouths to comment on it. Number 19. Number 19. 
Remember central passages and add cross-references over time. Learn to cross-reference from the editor's own references, especially in a study Bible. Consult books such as Bible Concordances for the translation you use, Nave's Topical Bible, N-A-V-E, that's the name of the author, and the third book, Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. And many of these are available online. They are available on your smartphones. And you can download them, go to websites. You can even have Bible apps that will help you search for whatever you're trying to find. Everything is at our fingertips for us to make cross-references. Why are cross-references necessary? Because of an earlier point we made about comparing Scripture with Scripture. To ensure we don't misinterpret, compare Scripture with Scripture. So back to the first point or comment. Remember central passages and add cross-references over time. Here's what is meant by that. If you were to think of a central key passage explaining marriage, what passage would come to your mind? Often it's Ephesians 5. Specifically, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. So, whenever you come across a verse on marriage, then write it in the margins or at the, at the bottom or at the top margin of Ephesians 5 and add verses as you come across them to show what Ephesians 5 has to say on marriage. And after you add five or ten verses, you have an instant Bible study whenever you're talking to your friends about marriage. You say, hey, friend, uh, you're talking about your marriage and things like that. You're a Christian, right? We're Christians, right? Yes. Okay, then let's open up the Bible and let's just read Ephesians 5 and look at a few cross-references. You have an instant Bible study to help somebody. The same with many other subjects such as predestination. What would be the passage for that? Romans 9 or Ephesians 1 or John 6. These are three common passages used to teach predestination. So whichever one you choose, add notes whenever you're reading through the Bible or whenever that Bible is taught in Romans 9 or John 6 on predestination. And do this with the various common subjects that come up. There's a dozen or two common subjects that will always come up. Everybody needs to know about them. So find the central passages. It'll be easy to remember the central passage. You say Ephesians 5, 5 or 10 times in context. Everybody knows that's about marriage. Okay, then you won't forget it. Then it becomes easier to remember where to find things in the Bible. That's point 19. Point number 20, number 20. Read from one printed Bible, one hard copy of the Bible. Read from one and one literal translation throughout life. One printed literal translation throughout your life. Whenever they update Bibles, don't be alarmed or even... Uh, giddy about, oh, well, they they came up with another translation. 
this year. And then ne the, in the next year, in the third year, in the fifth year, in the eighth year, they come up with a new translation. I need to get the new translation. No, no, don't go giddy over those new translations because often the new translations are meant for production and money-making by the publishers, not because they are actually helping you out in learning the Bible. So find one printed copy, hard copy of a literal translation. And of course, we recommend the 1995 New American Standard Bible, 1995. And 1995 was not so long ago that words uh, mean different things today or it's hard to understand. Not at all. Not the case at all. Then once you have one like that, uh, as well, you need to have margins. So keep neat notes in the margins. Find ones that will give you some room to write neat notes in the margins, especially cross-references. And, and then when you make notes and underline, underline with a ruler. Carry a small ruler with you in your, wherever you can keep it handy for your Bible. Carry a small ruler with you to make neat underlines because when your Bible is worn and torn and tattered, hopefully it won't because of what I'm about to say, but in 10 years or 15, 20 years, when you go back and see your scribbled underlines without the ruler, you're gonna say, oh, that page looks really ugly. It looks all smeared and smudging. I ruined my Bible by not being neat and clean about it. Because the Bible will become precious to you because you will have many, many notes and memories with that particular Bible. So related to point 20 about preservation of the Bible, take care of it. Do not place your Bible on the floor or surfaces with food and drinks. Not on the floor and not on surfaces with food and drinks. One, it's the Bible. And number two, if it's on the floor, don't you think we could step on it and kick it easily? With food and drink, don't you think cups spill, coffee cups spill, and then ruin the Bible? Yes. Would we keep our favorite picture? Look at it for a second and then just put it on the floor temp, uh, for an hour or so. Just keep it on the floor. Our favorite picture, our wedding picture, a picture of our children. We wouldn't do that. Whether it's in a frame or not in a frame, we wouldn't put it on the floor. Would we put our gold necklace on the floor? Would we put our marriage certificate or birth certificate on the floor? No, we would take care of those things. So let's take care of our hard copy of the Bible. Point 21, number 21. Listen to sermons that teach the Bible verse by verse. Don't tolerate jokes, anecdotes, and other kinds of fluff. Don't tolerate fluff. Don't tolerate cotton candy, a diet of cotton candy. Do not tolerate it. In fact, the Bible tells us not to tolerate it. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. 
Remember, as we're turning to 1 Corinthians 2, that even the book of Hebrews said we shouldn't be drinking sweet milk all the time. We need to eat solid food. We need meat and vegetables, right? And bread. But we can't be drinking sweet milk like an infant does all the time. So the same here, 1 Corinthians 2, 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. When sermons are filled with fluff, when they're filled with anecdotes, jokes, quotes from magazines, psychology today, current events, when they are filled with things like that, and even a tendency among some of the more theological to be quoting three, four, five, ten different theologians or commentators in order to sound like he is a scholar and erudite. Quoting from them in order to tell his hearers, you better listen to me, I did my homework. No, no, it's not about men or the glory of men or the wisdom of men. Preach the word of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. We do not preach ourselves. So that means the preacher should not be saying what flavor of ice cream he likes from the pulpit. He should not be talking about his favorite football team from the pulpit. He shouldn't be talking about his most memorable experience with his little children and things like that. Why does that, any of that matter? No, no jokes and other, other kinds of fluff. He says, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. We have to preach Christ from the word of Christ. And then what is the preacher? He is a slave, your slave. Bondservant means slave. Your slave for Jesus' sake. So he is there as a slave of our heavenly master to serve other fellow slaves for their souls. That's why he's there. And that's the kind of message you must hear. The Bible, the Bible alone and not entertainment and light superficial, sugary matter. Number 22, our final point, number 22. Use creeds, confessions, systematic theology, and commentaries as guides. As guides. Not infallible guides, but as guides, yet always test all things by Scripture. Use creeds, confessions, and so forth 
such as we use the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. Yet always test <coughs> all things <coughs> by Scripture. Yes, we're supposed to do so. First Thessalonians 5. First Thessalonians 5. Just as we use modern preachers to learn, we can use ancient preachers to learn from their written works, from their commentaries, from their sermons. We can learn. But it should be in perspective. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 to 22. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Second Peter, Second Peter, chapter three. Second Peter three, one and two. Second Peter three one. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Who is included among the apostles? 14, 2 Peter 3, 14 to 18. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest... Being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. We must understand the scriptures correctly and not be like the untaught and unstable who distort it to their own destruction including the letters of Paul. And these men who carry us away, it says they are, uh, we would be carried away by the error of unprincipled men. That's why we have to use discernment when we read things to know, is this man unprincipled or not? Is he preaching sound doctrine or not? Does he have sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, or not. 1 John 4, 1 John 4, verse 1. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Beloved, because he cares for them, he says, do not believe every spirit. Don't believe everything you hear, but test the spirits to see 
whether they are from God. How are we testing them? By the word of God. And why is it necessary? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. They are everywhere. The world is a wilderness. And in the wilderness, there are many wild animals. So we have to be on guard for the wolves, for the foxes, for the coyotes, for the lions and the bears. They're out there. These are the 22 points that may help us to soundly, correctly, accurately interpret Scripture. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.